we are concluding this morning our four-part series entitled Rim to Rim based on a walk that I took across the Grand Canyon about a month and a half ago. And as, we've been, uh, as I've been sharing with you, the reason we're doing this is it's really kind of like J- the way Jesus taught when he would observe something that happened and uh, he would see a, a, an, a, an event occurring and he'd say, hey, here's some lessons you can learn about the kingdom of God from this event. And as I did this walk, there were a handful of things that I learned that I want to pass on to you and some parallels and parable type of things that we learned through that <clears throat> as we've gone through it for the last two or three weeks. We started three weeks ago asking the question, where does a walk of faith really begin? And talking about how it begins when we see that there's something bigger than ourselves and that we need to focus our eyes on Jesus as the ultimate goal of that. And then two weeks ago, we actually started the trip itself, the walking down. And as we talked about last week, the walk across the Grand Canyon is a three-part walk. It's a third down, a third across, and a third up. And by the way, we've had several people who've mentioned they'd like to go on a a trip sometime soon. So I'm considering maybe doing it again next year, next May. And if you would like to go along on that, let me know and we'll see if we can put a list together and we'll start putting you through rigorous training because I, you, I will not be responsible for you unless I know you've got a major amount of training in because boy, does it ever need it. And some of what I'll be telling you today will assure you of the reasons why the training is necessary. But anyway, two weeks ago, we looked at the, at the, at the trip down, going deeper and how uh, our faith needs to go deeper than our hurts and how the Lord is there at the depths of our hurts if we will go deeply into him. Then last week we looked at the third across where it's pretty much flat. We talked about those times in our lives when things seem kind of flat spiritually, when it seems like nothing is happening, that if we take the right attitude, we can turn what seems boring into actually a time for real refreshment and real renewal, uh, where we can take a Sabbath of rest in our spiritual walk as well if we just simply approach it with the correct attitude. And today we're going to be taking a look at the last long uphill climb. We're going to see where faith ultimately takes us. Um, as I told you before, I went with a group of people, and on the first day especially, I went with one guy in particular. We kind of had the same pacing, so we kept together for most of the day. And it was really helpful because he had, he's done this walk a dozen to 20 times at least. And so he knew every turn of the, uh, of the, of the path. He knew what was happening. And uh, they came along at, at, at the long walk. We'd been walking, I think, about five uh, hours at that point. And we turned a big, serious corner, and we looked up, and there was basically just this cliff staring me in the face. And he said, yeah, we've got to get to the top of that. And then he turned to me and he says, now you know why people who walk the Grand Canyon say, this is where the hike really begins. I've been going for five hours. I haven't begun yet. Are you serious? But when I looked at what he was talking about, I went, oh, okay, yeah, I get it. That's what we got to do. So the last half of the day was going to be that final one-third going up where the walk really begins. In order to to get that walk done, especially to overcome some of the mental intimidation. There are some lessons that you need to learn before you do it, and then we'll walk through the lessons that we learn as it's doing it. First lesson is actually the lesson we started out with at the very beginning of the whole series, and that's this. Remember the goal. Remember the goal. We're going out of Hebrews chapter 12 for the bulk of this series. In fact, go with me there now because we'll take a look at it in a moment. It's page 835 in the Bibles we gave you. We'll look at other passages as well, but that's the really kind of the focus, the center of what we've been looking at through this series is where we started three weeks ago with this passage, Hebrews 12, 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And three weeks ago, we talked about how important it is to see Jesus, to keep our eyes on that goal, to know that it's him that we're pursuing, that it's not anything else. And as we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can get there. The two words we didn't look at out of this verse are two words that I want to concentrate on today. And if you're an underliner in your Bible, underline these two words, author and perfecter. They are what they sound like. 
Author means the one who begins it, the one who composes it, the one who makes it happen. Jesus is the author of our faith. He is where true faith really begins. Some of us are great starters. Maybe you've noticed that in your own life. Maybe you're one of those people, you're a great starter. You love the idea of, you love the new car smell of things. Right? You want it to be fresh and new, and when something begins, you're, you're excited and you're happy and you're so naive. Right? And it's all thrill at the very beginning of it, and then life hits you. There's an old saying that boxers have. Boxers say this, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the face the first time. <laughs> At that point, the plan can sometimes take an adjustment. We all start out fresh. The author, we're, beginning, we're ready to go, and then life hits. And we wonder, maybe that wasn't such a good plan to begin with. Jesus is the author of our, of our faith, but he is also the perfecter of it. That is, he's the finishing point. He's the one that brings it about to completion. So I want to encourage you, when we start life, when we start a walk of faith, we see Jesus as the goal, becoming like Christ being the ultimate goal. Life will happen to you. Bad things will occur. Challenges will come your way. Difficulties will come across your path. Obstacles will try to stop you. And the reason for all of them is to try to divert you from the ultimate goal, which is being like Christ. No matter what happens, we need to remember that goal. Life will try to get you to change your goal. Don't let it. We need to remember the goal. Hebrews 12.3 continues this way. Consider him, that's Jesus, who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus endured far more obstacles than we ever will, and he made it through. And because he did, he can also now offer that help to us. When we consider him, we won't grow weary. When we keep our eye on that goal, we'll have strength to get there. How many of you have ever had any kind of a race or anything and the middle part is just so tiring and then you can turn a corner and you can see maybe the tape at the end of the marathon or whatever it is and it's amazing the kick that happens and people at the end of a marathon will tell you there's, this, there's that corner to turn and all of a sudden people who could barely trudge, they see the tape and all of a sudden they got that burst of energy to get through. When you see the end, it's amazing what it can bring you. We need to consider him so that we don't grow weary. We need to remember the goal. Related to that and very important part of it is this. Don't be deceived by false goals. A few years ago, we did a series where we talked about climbing Mount Everest, and we did walk through the Sermon on the Mount. And every week, we added a little more to this, and we ended up, by the end of the series, this entire stage was a snow-capped mountain. And we were at the top of Everest by the time we reached there. Everest has a, has a false summit. For those of who, who aren't prepared, they think they're climbing towards something, and that's not it. And then when they get there... They look and go, oh no, it's still something higher. I thought it was on the highest spot on earth. That's higher. Well, that's the real summit. There's a false summit. The Grand Canyon North Rim has a false summit as well. Remember I told you last week about the woman who interrupted me in Costco because I had the, the, the shirt from Phantom Ranch and she had worked at Phantom Ranch and we talked all about the Grand Canyon walk sitting in the middle of Costco with someone I never met before talking about it. One of the things she brought up was, how would you feel when you hit that false summit and saw there was still more to go? I said, well, thankfully, I was with somebody who knew that and warned me in advance. Because <laughs> I'd have been really angry if I'd reached what I thought was the top and found out I still had another hour and a half to go. There is a false summit. In fact, I've got a picture of it up here. This is me on the false summit. After we got there, I took a picture. You'll notice how happy I appear to be. 
that's as much of a smile as I could muster at that point of the day, let me tell you. I'd have been, I, it would have been even nastier than that if I hadn't known that this was a false summit before I got there. Well, you can tell it's a false summit when you're there because there's stuff behind me that's higher than me, right? I mean, you know, you're still not all the way up. But when you're down below, you can't tell that. The angle isn't there. And then the next picture is me at the actual summit, or <laughs> a portion of me at the actual summit at least. When you get to the actual summit, that's when you take your shoes off and put your feet up. I would not recommend taking your shoes off and putting your feet up at the false summit. You've still got some walking to go. But when you get to the real summit, you can do that. And the reason I took that picture is because straight between my toes on the other side, that's where we started that morning and where we were heading to the next day. So that kind of gives you... And that's the, the look from the North Rim. Most people don't get that because the South Rim is where everybody goes and where you take all the pictures from. But that's also a very, very beautiful... Uh, it's worth going even if you just drive there by car just to see what it looks like from there. There's a false summit and there's a real summit. Part of the challenge we have in our lives is because of the counterfeits, there are people who don't believe there's a reality. I I've noticed, and we're going to get into it in the Job series, recently there's a whole new and growing uh, list of books and of talking and websites by atheists. Have you noticed that atheists are getting much more voicey lately? One of the uh, top ten books on the, on the best-selling list is, is God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens, a renowned atheist. And I've seen some of his debates recently on it. And one of the proofs he has that God is not real uh, is that there are all these religions. Uh, and to me, that's one of the evidences that God is real, because why would you bother to offer a fake of something that isn't real to begin with? Right? You only offer... You, you don't make up fake things that, aren't, that don't exist. You make up a fake dollar bill because dollar bills are actually valuable. But you don't fake something that isn't real to begin with. And so there, is a, there are fake summits, there are fake faith, faiths out there, but that's just evidence that there is a real summit to get to. There is real faith and there is a, a real place that Christ wants to take us to. And once we come to faith in Christ, Satan will want to put counterfeits in your way. He'll want to put false summits in your way. Matthew 24, Jesus put it this way. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now, I'm not worried that anybody here in this room is all of a sudden tomorrow going to start following a cult leader who's going to hook you up to a meteor or, or going to worship an idol that you happen to see when you're driving through little Saigon tomorrow. I'm not really worried about most people in this room that they're going to do that. So what does this idea of following false Christs mean to us? Where does that come into our life? Well, one of the ways that it comes into our life that I've noticed is this. The enemy of the best isn't usually the worst. The enemy of the best is the almost best. The enemy of the best is settling for not quite all the way there. Right? The enemy of the Grand Canyon isn't the Snake River Canyon. I mean, the Grand Canyon is the Grand Canyon. There's nothing else like it on Earth. They're not worried about losing their title. Right? The, the, the enemy of the Grand Canyon summit is the false summit of the Grand Canyon. It's almost getting all the way there. And so we do that in our own lives. I've seen it happen. People start out with a, with a walk of faith, for instance, and one part of the walk of faith may be, for instance, maybe they've had trouble with alcoholism. We work with, with that to celebrate recovery on Friday nights through the great, that great ministry here. And, um, and, and Bob and Debbie, who work with, with that, will tell you how often it happens that people will set out with the goal of, I'm going to give up drinking for good. And then Satan comes in and kind of sows something and deceives them. And the biggest challenge is typically not that the person who's given up drinking will completely be a total drunk again. The biggest enemy is the person who can't drink and shouldn't ever drink because they've got an alcohol problem, who decides after a certain period, well, I can probably drink a little bit. And they give up 
never drinking again for only drinking occasionally. And that's where the danger comes in. It's a false promise. Or counseling with, with, with husbands and wives, and every once in a while I'll meet somebody, who, a woman who, who is in a bad relationship with a boyfriend or a husband or whatever who maybe beats her. And the excuse we often hear, and every counselor who has ever counseled anybody in this situation has heard this at some point or another, well, he doesn't hit me as much as he used to. It's a false summit. The goal isn't to get hit less. The goal is not to be hit. The goal is to have a loving relationship. But what happens is you strive for that. Nobody sets out and gets married and says, I'm going to marry a guy who won't beat me too much. No, we want to get married to someone that we will love and who will love us and we'll have that great relationship with. And then real life hits us and so we settle. I mean, well, that's the best I can get, so I guess I'll... No, no, there's a real summit. There's a real place God wants to take us in faith and in life. Don't settle for any less than that. The way we get there is the next principle. Part of the way we get there is through this. Honor consistency more than spectacle. I told you about this when I first started. One of the reasons I do a hiking and so on, and that's my kind of my exercise of choice, is because I've never been fast or strong or all that coordinated. Uh, but I can, I can keep at it. I can be stubborn. I can just keep going. I can be consistent. And so while other people are out there doing spectacular things, I just keep trudging. But I get there. And by the end, I got the spectacle of, I walked across the Grand Canyon. How about you? Right? But I didn't do it because I did spectacular things. And it was interesting as you're walking across, uh, walking with guys especially who've been there before, every once in a while somebody will pass you, and you can just tell they've really done this before. They're just like, uh, they just have a faster pace than we do. And then every once in a while somebody will zip past, and the guy who's walking with me will lean over and go, we're going to see them again soon. And at first I ask, why? Well, they're not trained for this. They're going way ahead of their own pace. They're going to collapse pretty quickly. Just watch. Sure enough, 10 minutes later or an hour later or two hours later or whatever, we'll walk by and they're just, you know, they're sprawled on the side, just water, air, I need something. You know, They're fine. They're physically going to be okay, but they're just wiped out. They're exhausted. They've just spent everything at try- because they feel like life is like it's some kind of a race. And they're going ahead of a pace that's built for them. And they're trying to be spectacular. They're trying to maybe beat somebody or... They've got some time in mind that they're trying to get faster than. We need to honor consistency more than spectacle. Hebrews 12 again. Let's go back there. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we saw that a couple weeks ago, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. We saw that two weeks ago. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Take a look at those few words there. Let us run with perseverance. Perseverance is the key. It's not about spectacle. It's about consistency. It's about faithfulness. It's about perseverance. It's about keeping at it. One of the guys we were walking with, and it was his first time too, for most of the time we were walking, he was a good 100 to 200 yards behind us. It was just his pace. It was different than ours. Running a little bit slower. He was in good shape. He was making it. He was good. And we'd stop, and about 10 minutes later, he'd show up, and he'd sit down, and he'd have his food or drink or whatever. Sometimes he'd get up and leave with us, and sometimes he'd say, I'm not quite ready yet, and he'd leave. Always behind a little bit. And then all of a sudden, about halfway up the, the, the third, the climb at the end of the day, all of a sudden, Paul zips past us, and he's just, he's just going. And he's, he's just, and before we know it, we can barely see him. Where is he ahead of us? And my, my friend, of course, turns to me and goes, oh, man, we're going to be scraping him off the trail. Are you sure? You sure it's not just a second gear? Oh, trust me, I've seen this before. 
he, I think he, he just got tired of waiting and he's feeling bad and he's just determined he's going to be ahead of us. And sure enough, of course, we passed him and he was just like, <laughs> you know, we stopped and helped him out a little bit. It was like, no, go on ahead, go on ahead. He eventually made it. He was okay, but it was a lot, he was a lot farther behind us at the end than he was through most of the day because he tried to do something that wasn't his to do. Consistency was more important than spectacle. In church, in faith, we have a lot of people who like the spectacle. Have you seen it? Yeah, people who, right, they, it's all about Jesus has got more money for you or bigger things for you or this great thing. And there are great things and big things that God has for us. But faith is not about spectacle. It's not about having more or better than or more spectacular than someone else. It's about am I being faithful to what God has called me to be faithful to? And are you being faithful to what God has called you to be faithful to? And there's no reason to compare those two. Faithful is faithful is faithful. And sometimes it looks more grand and sometimes it looks less grand and it doesn't matter to the Lord. But we get caught up sometimes in the spectacle. Life's not a contest. Our faith is not a contest. Don't worry about others who appear to be doing so great in their faith while you're struggling along. If you're being faithful, that's all God asks. It's about consistency, not spectacle. And then as we're going along and we do these things, one of the things that I found as we went along was you learn from each other. So we need to pass along what you learn. Remember this very early on, as you're going along the Grand Canyon, there'll be people that sometimes you'll pass or they'll pass you, or you'll, you'll be going opposite ways. They're coming from this end and you pass each other. And it's interesting, as you're walking through the Grand Canyon, you relate to people in a way that you wouldn't when you're walking through the mall. Like at the mall, when you see a bench, like a four-seater bench, and there's one person sitting on it, nobody else goes near it, right? I'm not going to sit on a bench with that guy there. Even though he's sitting way on that end, I'm not even going to sit on that other end. No matter how tired I am, that's his bench. He's got the whole thing. Right? Grand Canyon, doesn't matter. You can sit down and just land on somebody you don't know, and they'll just sit there and take it and go, fine. Right? How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. Did you make it through this? Yeah, I did. Next thing you know, you're sharing intimate stuff about yourself you never thought you'd share with a stranger. You just don't care. It's very different. And part of what happens is you learn early on, the more information you share, the more helpful it is to everybody. So you're passing this way, and you know you've got something coming up. And this person's just come from there. So you've asked them, hey, how far is it? Or what's it like? Is the water there today? Is that creek dried up? Oh, no, it's not. Yes, it is. And you share the information. Our faith is important that way, too. I talk about it in our exploring class. We'll have it again in the fall. It's our introductory class to the things that we believe here at Cornerstone. One of the things I talk about in that class is my style of ministry is that of a coach. And part of it is because of just the, the, the way my faith has been lived until now. I got saved when I was about six years old. I'm 47 now. That means I got 41 years of walking with Jesus behind me, which means there are going to be very few people who are going to come along who are going through something in faith that I haven't already walked through in some way or another. After 41 years, there's an awful lot of paths I've walked through. And virtually every one of them I've struggled with in some way or another. Never just been a snap and, oh, I got that one, let's move on. It's always been a challenge. I deal with it and come back and deal with it again. So if you're struggling with an area of faith, I've probably struggled with it too. And as a pastor, I want to be there to help you. Here's how my struggle went. Here's what you can expect from yours. But, and, then, and then we have the responsibility to pass that on to somebody else. Hebrews 11. We've been in Hebrews 12. You've got it open there. Take a look back at Hebrews 11. A couple weeks ago we did this. Hebrews 11 is about the Old Testament saints and about what they handed on off to us, passing along what they learned. But there was a portion in this that I read when I was doing a study on this that I had never noticed before. Take a look at it, Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 39. Talking about the Old Testament saints and all the things they went through, he says this, These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. 
This was one of those, where has this verse been all my life moments when I read it recently? The first part I had always understood. They were commended for their faith, yet none of them had received what had been promised because Jesus hadn't come yet, so their faith was unfulfilled. That I already got. The next part of it I got, that God had something better for us. Why? Because we came with or after Christ, so we knew the fulfillment of our faith. That always made sense. But that last little section, only together with us would they be made perfect. Where did that come from? And does it really say what it seems to say? Does it really say only together with us would they be... Because we're talking about Abraham, we're talking about David, we're talking about Moses, we're talking about Esther. Is it really saying that only together with me and you and us would Abraham's faith be made perfect? Abraham needs to walk with me? David needs my faith to get there? Is that what it's saying? And yes, it is. It's saying without my faith being what it ought to be, David's faith won't be what it was meant to be. Well, how does that work out? Well, here's here's how it works out. The Old Testament people, the New Testament tells us that the Old Testament lives that were lived, a big part of the way they lived their lives was to point us to Christ, to pave the way to point us to Christ. And the pointer fails in his task if the person that, that he's pointing it out to doesn't get to where he's pointing. Right? If I'm telling you, hey, I'm pointing, go over there, and you don't go over there, I've failed in my task of pointing. They're pointers, and if I don't get where they're pointing, their job is incomplete. Have you ever had the situation where maybe you're with a little kid very early on or, even, or like with a pet? And I remember with our dog early on trying to teach her, you know, Trixie go, right? And what do they do? They stare at the finger. And then, no, no, over there, over there. And she's looking at it like, was there food on the finger? What? Right? And, she, and after a while, she finally learns, okay, that finger means follow what's over it. Oh, now I get it. But for a long time, it's staring at the finger. A lot of the way that we as Christians look at the Old Testament is staring at the finger. For instance, we're going to start the series on Job next week. If all you do is stare at Job and his situation and what happens to him, you will be staring at the finger. You won't see the full picture. The story of Job is to point us to something bigger and greater and better. And if we miss that, we miss the point. Now, the finger matters. We'll part, take a look at that. But where it's pointing is the main thing. We need to pass along what we learn. They are cheering us on, and when we live our faith outright, even the Old Testament saints' faith matters more. Because every step of faith you take is building on somebody else's faith. And then we can pass it on to somebody else, and our faith can be made greater because somebody that we pass it on to lives it to fulfillment as well. A similar point from the same verse is this one. Leave no one behind. Part of the reason you pass on what you learn is so that they'll make it through. But there are times when they need a little bit of extra help. The guys who took me on this hike would not have considered their walk a success if they had made the walk and I had failed to make the walk. I would not have considered their walk a success either if that had happened. And there was one point where we met everybody down at the river and there were a couple of the guys who were new guys, one of the guys particularly that I knew well, and when they met us at the river, they were in really bad shape already. They weren't a third of the way. They weren't a quarter of the way of the effort of the day yet, and they were already looking like they're wiped out. And so one of the guys stayed with them, and we took off. At minimum 50 times in the rest of the day, I turned to the guy who was, uh, was with me and said, I am really worried about them. I mean, are they going to make it? Are they going to be okay? I, I just keep I, I was all the rest of the day. I was thinking about them. I was worried for them. Because, I mean, they were just, especially as things got, every time we'd go to a really tough spot, I'd turn to him and go, 
They're not going to make it through that. How are they going to? I'm really, and every time I'd say that, he'd turn to me and go, Carl, we've never left a man behind. Everybody who's come with us, we've gotten them out. Don't worry. We know what we're doing. We'll be okay. We'll get him out by the end. And sure enough, they did. Now, some of the things that they've gone through to get everybody out has been interesting. Some are easier than others. Sometimes they've they left somebody behind because they looked like they'd be okay, and they've had to go back in the dark and find them and bring them up. One of the most amusing ones was a situation where they got, went with a guy, and uh, he said, you know, you guys go ahead. It's only a, a couple couple hours up, and I know exactly where we're going. I'll be fine. Okay, fine. Blah, blah. And they got to the top, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited like a couple hours longer than they should have been waiting. They started getting worried, and then other people were coming up, and they started asking, hey, have you seen a guy wearing such and such? No, no, until finally one guy went, oh, that's the guy, that's the Onward Christian Soldiers guy. And, oh, that's right, that's him. And they're going, what? What are you talking about? Yeah, about two miles down, there's this guy, and he's just laying flat out by the side of the trail. He's exhausted, he's spent, he's got nothing left in him. And apparently he told the first guy that he was there that he was a Christian or something. He wanted him to pray for him, but the guy didn't know any prayers, and the only thing he knew was Onward Christian Soldiers from church. So he started singing Onward Christian Soldiers to him. And every time somebody else comes, new comes in, they take up the singing while the other ones go, and there's been this parade of people coming through, standing around this guy, laying by the trail, singing onward, Christian soldiers. They finally had to go down and pick him up and bring the Christian soldier onward, but they, they got him out. They said, literally, that happened, bring this guy out to onward, Christian soldiers. Leave no one behind. I refer to this a lot here in Cornerstone, but there's someone who is watching your walk. See, we need to ask ourselves regularly, is the walk that I'm walking the one that I want somebody else to see and to follow? I've mentioned this before as well, but you know, I, it irritates me whenever I hear it. Some sports figure or some movie star or some you know, rock and roll singer or whatever will go, you know, they've done some bad thing and somebody will ask them, you know, what about your fans? And they'll say, well, I'm not any role model. I never said I was any role model. You know what? If you're wearing an NBA jersey, you're a role model. If you're playing a guitar in front of 40,000 people, you're a role model. If your face is 40 feet tall on a screen in front of 200 people, you're a role model. Whether you signed up for the role model part of it or not, you are. So step up and be what you're supposed to be. And whether you're in one of those positions or not, if you have anybody else in your life that you know and relate to in any way whatsoever, you are a role model because somebody's watching you and is going to follow the way you walk. You need to be sure you're walking in the right way so that they don't get left behind by following a bad path. Stay on the right path. Reach back and make sure that you're aware of who's following you. Don't leave anybody behind. That's the behind, but we've also got to look ahead. It leads us to this. You need to know who's meeting you at the end. Just to give you a little bit of way when I finally got through and made it to the end collapsed at the end for about an hour. They all gathered around, gave me some water and helped me out. And I got to my car and I was going to drive from uh, Grand Canyon that night to Lake Arrowhead where Shelly was waiting for me in a cabin just to relax for the weekend. And um, they told me, they said, you know what, you probably shouldn't drive all that way. You probably just want to drive maybe to Williams or somewhere and just get a hotel for the night alone. That'd be fine. 
I said, okay, I'll probably do that. That makes sense. So I called her and told her I'd, I'd do that. A couple hours later, I called her back and said, you know, I got so much adrenaline flowing through me, I'm not going to be able to sleep no matter where I stop. I'm coming all the way through. And boy, am I glad I did. Because if I had been stuck the next day by myself in a hotel room with nobody else around, I'd have been in a mess. Because when I woke up the next morning, I was walking like a cardboard character. And Charlotte will tell you, if she hit the back of my cab, it would be like knocking on wood. But it was so hard right there. You could see the muscle striations in the, in the front of my legs. I had lost so much water weight and everything else that I'd gone so long without food for the drive and then being so still, everything had all tightened up. I mean, she'll tell you, I, I, I needed her help literally to walk from one room to the next. You know, and, of course, the only person that, that, that could do what had to be done the next day for me was my lovely bride tomorrow of 24 years. Yeah. Yeah. And trust me, there's stuff that my body required the next day that I would not have been comfortable having anybody else do. Dealing with my feet, the mess that they were, and carrying me here and there. I mean, just I was just, I was really, I was hurting. And, and, and you know, I knew that would happen. But it, it mattered who was meeting me at the end, who was going to take care of me when it was all done. Who's meeting you at the end? It's amazing how many people want to go to heaven but they spend very little time getting to know the owner before they get there. You see, going to heaven is not about the place. If it was, the Bible would spend an awful lot more time describing it. Very little description of heaven in Scripture. And all the images that we've got, playing harps, floating on clouds, none of them are in there. <laughs> Thank God, because that sounds really boring to me. Very little description of heaven, aside from that it's where Jesus will be. That's the main description of heaven. It's about the presence of the Lord. But it makes sense. Because whenever you go anywhere, it's not about the place. It's about who you're with. I mean, sure, there are nice places you want to go. I wanted to go to the Grand Canyon, and I did. You know, but just say, for instance, you've always, for all of your life, wanted to go to this great resort in the Bahamas or whatever. Do you really want to get on a plane and go there and sit on the beach by yourself? I guess I'll go have dinner now by myself. I guess I'll go to bed now by myself. I guess I'll go swimming in the pool now by myself. That's why people write, I wish you were here cards when they're on vacation, because they really do. They wish you were there. The point of vacation isn't the place you're going, it's who you're going to be with when you get there. It's about relationship. That's the whole point. So how many times maybe have you been there or maybe you had to travel for business and you get there and you go, oh, I just wish so-and-so was here with me. I wish my wife was here, my husband were here, my kids were here, right? I wish they were here with me. That's what it's all about. Who's meeting you at the end and do you have a relationship with him? Heaven's not going to be much if you get there and you don't really know the proprietor all that well because that's the whole point of getting there. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Life is not just simply some cruel joke that God plays on us as some test that we got to pass to get to heaven. It's a chance to get to know the owner before we arrive. It's a chance to develop a relationship so that when we get there, the thrill of heaven is even greater the more we know Jesus before we get there. I had a chance to have a conversation with a friend this week. There were actually four of us. And one of the four friends has really gone through a real, real hard time this past year or so has gone through family issues, financial issues, legal issues, job issues, just just horrific things in the last year and a half or so. And as we were meeting this week, he turned to us in the middle of it all and said, you know what, I, I don't know how people make it through these kinds of things. First of all, if they don't know the Lord. And secondly, he said, I don't know how I'd have made it through without you guys. 
and people like you who are in my life. How do people make it through these things without people around? And we all just said, yeah, we're glad we're here for you. And we just kind of had a, you know, one of those nice little moments. It wasn't until I was driving home that I thought, you know what? It's interesting because I don't know if any of the actual events that were going wrong and are still, many of which are still going wrong, I don't know if we've changed one of them. Financial situation, still the same. Family situation, still the same. One of his relatives had died. We haven't resurrected his relatives. Still dead. Still dealing with the grief of that loss. What have we actually done to change the circumstance? And I couldn't think of anything. We haven't made any of those things better. We, some of them have gotten worse, not because of us, but some of them have gotten worse since then. And yet it was an appreciation of thank you. Why? What had we done? We were there. That's what we did. We were there. And that's what the main point of heaven is all about. To develop a relationship with Christ today so that he's what we look forward to at the end. So that we can't wait to get there because I want to see Jesus' face. I've got to tell you, when I think of heaven, I don't know what the description is going to look like, but you can't describe anything that I'd be going, wow, I want to live my whole life so I can see that. But live my whole life so I can see Jesus? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what it's all about. That's where we want to go. I want to know who's meeting me at the end. I know who's meeting me at the end. And that's what's going to matter when I get there. Next point, before we're just about done. Count the cost. Referred to it a little bit of already. Some of the hurt that you get when you're done with all this. There's some effort you have to put into life and into faith. And some of it will be painful. Some of it will be challenging. Some of it will be costly to you. I knew I'd be hurting at the end of this thing. That's why, even though the, the walk was done on Saturday, I didn't plan to come here and preach on Sunday morning. One of the guys, well, I told you, most of the group we went with were preachers this time. It just happened to be this way. And we, everybody was saying, no, I'm not preaching Sunday morning. No way. And one guy went, oh, yeah, I am. Why not? Are you kidding me? Why not? He found out why not. I heard later, he was just like, he, they, they practically had to what, carry him out onto the platform on Sunday morning, and he barely made it through. He was just so hurting on Sunday morning. You need to count the cost. You need to realize what it's going to cost you. There's a risk in walking in faith, too. See, too many of us approach faith that we think it's some little game. And so we pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of that. And it used to be a joke, but a lot of people aren't joking about it anymore. There are people now who literally, they'll go to a church and they'll go to a mosque and they'll check out a shrine and they'll make sure their house is all feng shui properly and they'll take care of their chakra over here, right? And, and they'll cross themselves. Why? Because they want to have everything covered. Because whichever one happens to be there at the end, they want to say, oh, I did yours. Now, if none of them are real, go ahead and do that. Pick whatever works for you. The problem with that is Jesus is real. And playing games like that with him is dangerous. Playing games with your faith with Jesus is dangerous. Jesus talked about people who had this cafeteria faith or went partway in their faith with him. Matthew 7, go with me there. It's page 673 in the Bibles we gave you. Matthew 7, beginning with verse 5, Jesus is talking, and he says this. 7.15, not 5. 7.15. He says, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Okay, what's the fruit? Jump ahead to verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What he's, he's referring to is the cafeteria of people of faith. It's not like you're going to get to heaven 
stand there before the judgment seat and you, and you go, oh, it's Jesus. Oh, good. I, I, I did some church time. Well, I'm glad I checked that one off my religion list. And he's just going to go, oh, yeah, I see. You were in church too. That's great. Come on in. That's not the way it works. Okay, they've got the words right. But what's going to happen? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, take a look. Take a look at this. Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Oh, wait a minute. Wow, that sounds like doing the will of the Father. Are you kidding me? They actually prophesied. They actually drove out demons and actually performed many miracles. And you'll notice it doesn't say they pretended to do those things, and he doesn't challenge them that they actually did those things in his name. They actually did those things in his name. That's the spectacle part of faith that we talked about. Spectacle rather than the consistency. Okay? What does he respond to those people who actually did those things in Jesus' name? Then I will tell them plainly, verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wait a minute, but I went to church. I actually prayed for people and they actually got healed. I did all the church stuff. I helped out at VBS. I, I, I tithed. I did all these things. Isn't doing all this stuff enough? And Jesus says, no. Doing the stuff isn't what it's about. It's knowing him that's about. What is his complaint? I never knew you. He didn't say I never saw you. He doesn't say I didn't appreciate the stuff. He doesn't say oh, it's not good that you help people. All those things could be great. But it's not about that. It's about knowing him and him knowing us. I never knew you is what he says. So verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, that's the key, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock and then Jesus tells that parable. There are people who do the religious stuff but miss the relationship stuff. So what is it that Jesus really wants from us? Church attendance? Tithing? Going on missions trips? Those are all good. They're all helpful. They're all things that we need to do. But they're not what saves us. They're not the point of faith. They're the side things. Jesus addressed the Pharisees who tithed even on the, on the herbs in their garden. And he says, you're tithing even on the herbs of the garden, but you're missing a couple things. You're missing points of righteousness and mercy. You're missing justice. He said, go ahead and tithe. That's a good thing to do. But don't leave the more important things, justice and mercy. Don't leave them undone. Why? Because justice and mercy flow from character. And my character is formed by the people I hang around with. And I only get justice and mercy from hanging around with Jesus because that's where it all comes from. So what comes from me out of relationship with him is what matters. He wants a relationship. Far too many of us religiously do the outside stuff and we never go deeper. The goal is Jesus and having a relationship with him. Don't do partway faith. It's dangerous stuff. Don't start a relationship with Jesus unless you t uh, plan to finish it. The Grand Canyon walk, I could have walked across and done 90% of it, but if I'm 10% below that rim, I am still stuck in the middle of the Grand Canyon. Doing 90% puts me in the same place as doing 10%. I'm still 10% from the edge and somebody's going to have to come and drag me out. Right? Sometimes we think, oh, I'll just do enough and that'll be okay. I've used this illustration before. Would it be good enough for you if I tightened the lug nuts on your wheels on your car 99% of the way? Because I can do that with my fingers. 99% of the turning of that lug nut can be done with my fingers. That last bit that's done with the wrench or with the power wrench or the thing, that's a that's very, very small amount of turning actually happens in that. 
You want to go with 99%? You going to trust that one? If so, see me afterwards. We'll see you. Send you on home. I would not recommend that. Right? The last percent matters. Don't do the church game without the relationship that it's supposed to signify. And then finally, as the band comes up, I want to conclude with something we took a little short look at last week. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Don't miss the grace. Don't miss the grace. At the end of the second day, I was feeling miserable on the inside and the outside. First day was fun. It was great. I was ready to go a second day. And I'm glad I went the second day. First half of the second day, wonderful fun. And then the uphill climb on the second day. There are words for that that I can't use in church. And it was, it was hot. It was fun. It's called the Bright Angel Trail. It was bright. There was nothing angelic about it. When I did finally finish it, the guy looked at me and said, what do you think? I said, the Bright Angel Trail is a bad place. So I, walk, I was walking along, and I was less than half an hour from done. I'd been walking for almost 11 hours that day, and the last three or four had just been physical, emotional agony. And I'm just thinking, oh, I guess I've got to get out of here. I'm, I'm, I'm hating myself for thinking of doing this. I'm hating the guys who brought me along. I'm this close to hating God for making the Grand Canyon to begin with. And I'm going around, and I turn around a corner, and I see this. Mountain goat. About the size of a horse. It's huge. And I stop, and I go, wow. And people come in behind and go, well, how come you're stopping there? And whoa! And before you know it, we got a whole group of us. Of course, everybody does the same thing. Where's my camera? Where's my camera? We all shoot pictures of the same. That's what, that's right there. And we just, and it was perfect because it was just like, at the point of greatest misery, it was turning around like, hey, there's a reminder why I'm here. I'd never see that if I hadn't taken the walk. You don't see that from the edge. And then we had to realize, okay, we got to get past this guy. And if you can take a look at the part of him that's next to the trail, Actually, I don't know if he'd be better facing the other way with those horns. Either way, we didn't want to pass too close. So what do we do? So we all started making noise and yelling, banging the walkie sticks together. And didn't impress him much. He sees people all the time, and so far none of them have really looked all that scary to him, apparently. But eventually we got him to run away, and he ran off. We got a picture of him running off. So there he is. He's gone. And we figure, oh, hey, that's great. So for the next 10 minutes or so, it's kind of like, man, that was pretty cool. That was great. But after a little while, it's worn again. It's like, I'm like 15 minutes from the end. I'm thinking, I am just, this is just awful. Turn around another corner, and there he is again, and he looks just like this. That's not a zoom picture or whatever. That's me backed out as far as I can with my camera, because that's how close it was to me. And it was one of these things where it was like, okay, Lord, when I needed something, you gave me the grace. That's what it's like when God gives you the grace. In the middle of the hardest time, there will be something that the Lord will bring that will remind you of why you're walking this walk of faith. A piece of grace, a piece of beauty, a piece of wonder. And sometimes we can walk right past it and miss it. Don't miss the grace. That's why you're taking the walk to begin with. Don't let the difficult climb overwhelm you. You know, we talked about the Everest thing earlier. And there are times when a climb up feels like climbing up Everest. It feels like I'm going to the top of something, and it's great. There are other times when the walk of faith up feels like a canyon, like I've dug myself a hole and I'm trying to get out. (laughs) But either way, you're going up. So maybe this morning you're on one of those upward walks where you feel like things are going great. 
If so, don't miss the grace in the forward walk and enjoy where the Lord is taking you to new heights and to new things and to cool stuff. That's great. But maybe for some of you, you're just trying to dig yourself out of a hole. Maybe it's one you made for yourself. Maybe it's one that life just threw at you through circumstances. It doesn't matter. What matters isn't where you are, but it's where you're heading. And give it to the Lord. And don't miss the grace. Let's stand together. And I want us to take a few moments. We're going to sing the song we sang earlier. And take it as a moment to reflect, where am I now? Am I doing what the Lord wants me to do? Am I being that consistent person he wants me to be? And am I maybe missing the grace? And Lord, show me the grace. Let's just take a moment, and then I'll conclude in a minute. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, I thank you that what that song states is really true. Uh, We don't have to go out and dig grace up out of the ground. It falls like rain. We just need to not carry an umbrella. We just need to be outdoors and get wet. We just need to receive it when it falls, because it does. In the middle of our most difficult times, grace falls like rain. Help us not to miss it. I ask, Lord, that you'd help those who may be particularly facing a, a particularly difficult time and it's feeling like they'll never get themselves out of this. Help them to keep walking. Help them to keep walking. For those who have been going through a religious ritual, doing the religious things, but not really developing a relationship with you, Lord, may this be the beginning of something wonderful where they get to know you better and better every single day. You are the start. You are the finish. You are the middle. You are everything, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you are worthy of those places in our life, that you are worthy to be everything because you will never let us down. Thank you, Jesus, for loving us. Thank you for meeting with us today and speaking to us through your word. Help us to leave this place not just more determined to live it, but more able to live it through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Have a great day. Hi there. If my voice sounds familiar because you've just been listening to a message from me, my name's Carl Vaders. If the voice you're hearing now is different from the voice you just heard, well, either way, the message you just heard was preached at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. And we're just tagging this on to the end of, in case you got a copy of a copy of a copy of something, and I'm not sure where it came from. Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is located at 17575 Euclid Street in Fountain Valley, California. You can get a hold of us through the phone number 714-962-5412 or check us out on the web at cornerstonefv. That's cornerstonefv for fountainvalley.com.